Turn in your Bible tonight to 2 Chronicles chapter 15. 2 Chronicles and chapter 15. I'd like to read the first seven verses of the 15th chapter of the 2 Chronicles. The Bible says in verse 1, And the Spirit of God came upon Azariah, the son of Oded. And he went out to meet Asa, and said unto him, Hear ye me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you while ye be with him. And if ye seek him, he will be found of you. But if ye forsake him, he will forsake you. Now for a long season Israel hath been without the true God, and without a teaching priest, and without law. But when they in their trouble did turn unto the Lord God of Israel and sought him, he was found of them. In those times there was no peace to him that went out nor to him that came in. But great vexations were upon all the inhabitants of the countries. The nation was destroyed of nation, and city of city. For God did vex them with all adversity. Be ye strong, therefore, and let not your hands be weak, for your work shall be rewarded. God never intended for there to be a 200-year gap between revivals. It's not what he intended. It's not surprising that Israel as a nation was blessed when Samuel was prophet. What a wonderful man of God Samuel was. How would you like to have a mother who prayed like this? There's none holy as the Lord. There's none beside thee. Neither is there any rock like our God. Talk no more so exceeding proudly. Let not arrogancy go out of your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him are actions weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken. They that stumbled are girded with strength. They that were full have hired out themselves for bread, and they that were hungry ceased. For the barren hath borne seven, and she that hath many children is waxed feeble. For the Lord killeth and maketh alive. He bringeth down to the grave and bringeth up again. The Lord maketh poor and maketh rich. He bringeth low and lifteth up. He raiseth up the poor out of the dust and lifteth up the beggar out of the dunghill to set them among princes that they may inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's. He has set the worlds upon them. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Out of heaven shall he thunder upon them until they be destroyed. For by strength shall no man prevail. How would you like to have a mom that prayed like that? It's no wonder that Samuel's a little boy there in the temple. When he heard the voice of God speaking, his response was, Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. All the days of Samuel, God blessed the nation. But as we read on, we see the deterioration over the years. King Saul 
King David, King Solomon. Under Solomon, the temple was built. There was great rejoicing. The land prospered, but Solomon loved many strange women. Rehoboam, Solomon's son, divided the kingdom. He forsook the Lord, he forsook the law of God, and all Israel with him. And then comes Abijah, and he walked in all the sins of his father. And now for six generations, approximately 200 years, there's been no revival. A gap. The United States of America has, three, has seen three notable awakenings. The first great awakening, 1740 or so. Some in that era would say years before God was stirring, God was working. But there in Northampton, Jonathan Edwards reported that suddenly there was a movement of God, a surprising awakening. He recalled many unusual deaths that took place and then the conversion of a very frivolous woman. And suddenly, even the young people were docile before God. There was a hunger, there was a searching, and that was when Jonathan Edwards stood and preached that famous message, sinners in the hands of an angry God. People clung to the pillars of the church, lest they be thrown into a place called hell. The Great Awakening was birthed. Men like George Whitfield and John Wesley and others began to preach. And God began to move. The second Great Awakening, early part of the 1800s, when even the higher places of learning that had gone astray many years before, places like Yale and Harvard, were called back to God. That revival of the Second Great Awakening took place over 25 years, at least some say as many as 50 years, that impact was felt. Then it came in 1857 and 1858, once again, another awakening as that great New York uh, City prayer meeting broke out. The prayer meeting revival, not one sermon preached, simply men gathering at the noon hour to pray. And it is recorded that over one million people came to Christ during that prayer meeting revival of 1857, 58. So now it's been nearly 200 years. Another gap. And we wonder, is revival even possible? Could it be in the condition that we are in tonight that it would be possible for us to have an awakening? Or do we pray in vain? Do we hope in vain? Do we labor in vain? Tonight, I'd ask you to look with me in this chapter of 2 Chronicles 15 and see three conditions that are present here in this gap between revival. Perhaps tonight we could close that gap. Perhaps tonight we could end the dearth. Perhaps tonight we could see once again a fresh awakening of God in our lives. Three conditions. 
First, we see the famine of revival. God spells it out here in these early verses as we see a misplaced authority. In verse number three, now for a long season, Israel has been without the true God. Now, it wasn't that they were without gods. They had their gods. They were a country that was still worshiping their gods. But they were without the true God. We have our gods today in America. We worship the God of power. We worship the God of possessions. We worship the God of the past. We worship the God of pleasure, performance, or preference. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. Now we know that. We know that there are not many different gods. We do not believe tonight in this room in a plurality of gods. We do not serve an eclecticism of gods. We understand, we know that there is but one God. We say that, we teach that, we say we believe that. But have we misplaced that authority? The evangelical churches of Canada were recently challenged by their government to bow to the LGBTQ agenda or lose their buildings. They chose their buildings. We say we have one God. But I'm afraid we have a misplaced authority. And there was a missing ambassador. In verse 3, for a long season, Israel had been without the true God and without a teaching priest. Now, Israel had many priests, but they weren't teaching. All of the rituals were being performed. All of the ceremonies were being conducted. But no one was teaching the law. Gentlemen, may I suggest tonight that we will not keep our congregations through fellowship and through activity. We are losing people tonight to materialism. We are losing them to worldliness. We are losing them to the false cults because we are not grounding them in the word of God. We do err, not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. Why, pray tell, are we canceling services? Why are we diminishing preaching and minimizing the teaching of God's word today? Why are we playing games in junior church? The liberals have targeted our children. They are after their soul. And they're winning the battle. The social media influencers have the attention of our kids. The sports stadiums, the music concerts, the movie theaters, they're sold out. I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. 
Be instant, in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine but will heap to themselves teachers having itching ears and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and be turned into fables. We are there tonight. Because there was misplaced authority because there was a missing priest, there is now mocked accountability. For a long season, verse 3, Israel had been without the true God, without a teaching priest, and without law. Without law. Perhaps you've noticed we live in similar days. Did you see verse 5? In those times there was no peace to him that went out nor to him that came in. But great vexations were upon all the inhabitants of the countries. Nation was destroyed of nation, city of city, for God did vex them with all adversity. You see, the natural result of no one preaching the word of God is antinomianism. Every man doing that which is right in their own eyes. And there is chaos. There is confusion. People afraid to go out at night. People afraid for their lives. And all of the vice and all of the violence of our day is a result of no true God. No teaching priest. And now no law. Listen, you learned that it was wrong to steal in church. You learned it was wrong to lie in church. You learned it was wrong to commit adultery in church. We're a mess tonight. There is a famine of revival, and it is time that we get back to an awakening in our own heart and life. By the way, it is in these times that God works. It is in these times that God wants to do a great work. Nineveh was not a prime city for an evangelist. It wasn't even a good city for a backslidden evangelist. God told Jonah to go, but Jonah said they don't deserve it. They don't deserve any grace. They don't deserve any forgiveness. Nineveh was a wicked uh, part of the Assyrian Empire. Violence, materialism, everything that you can imagine on the news tonight was in Nineveh. And yet it took just one sermon to God, for God to awaken that city. One sermon and every single person repented. We're just one sermon away. The days of Ahab and Jezebel were not easy days to have a revival. There was none like unto Ahab, which did sell himself to work wickedness in the sight of the Lord, whom Jezebel, his wife, stirred up. God said there was nobody any more wicked than Ahab, and the catalyst behind that wickedness was his wife Jezebel. And yet Elijah began to pray. And he prayed that it would not rain for three and a half years. And God not only answered that prayer, he didn't even send any dew upon the earth for three and a half years. But when Elijah prayed for fire, God sent the fire. 
And all Israel knew that there was but one God. Pentecost was not a prime day for revival. They had just killed Jesus. They had just put him on the cross. Peter, as he preaches on that day of Pentecost, looks at that crowd, and in verse 23 of chapter 2 in Acts, he said, you have taken and with wicked hands have crucified and slain the Son of God. They were the very ones at that cross who were mocking They were the very ones at that cross who were saying, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And yet God came down on the day of Pentecost in mighty power and awakened their hearts and their souls. There's a famine of revival. But I want you to see, secondly, a forerunner of revival. In verse 1 it says, and the Spirit of God came upon Azariah the son of Oded. Notice the inspiration from above, the spirit of the Lord. Gentlemen, revival does not come through a man. Now that doesn't mean that God does not use men. He delights in using men. But it is the spirit that quickeneth. The flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. It's not by might. It's not by power. It's by my spirit, saying, saith the, the Lord. You see, we must get back to hearing from God. We must get back to walking with God. Our people need a word from God. Here was an inspiration from above. And notice an investment in Asa. In verse 2, Azariah, as the Spirit of God moves upon him, he went out to meet Asa. You see, this revival that we read about in 2 Chronicles 15 does not come under the leadership of Azariah. It comes through Asa. Does revival have to come through you? Or are you okay if it comes through someone else? Are we okay here in America if revival comes to some other country first? Or does revival have to start in America? Are we okay if it's not our church that is the birthplace of revival? Are we willing to rejoice that that God could send revival anywhere tonight? Are we willing to invest our lives in others so that revival can come? I was studying the pilgrims some years back, and I was doing some research, contacted a lady over in England who has done quite a bit of historical study of the pilgrims. And as I was speaking with her, she said, you know, the pilgrims had a 500-year plan. I said, what? A what? I mean, we have a five-year strategic plan at the college, and I can't keep up with it. She said they had a 500-year plan. I said, ma'am, explain that to me. She said the pilgrims knew when they left Holland, when they went down to England and got on those ships, that they might never make it. In fact, they had planned to take two ships, but only one was seaworthy. So Pastor John Robinson of that congregation decided to stay back. So did some of the women. 
They told their husbands to go to take their sons to the new land. They had a 500-year plan. They knew that many of them might not make it. They knew that some could die even at sea and many would die in that first winter there at Cape Cod. Their desire was that even in their death they would be a stepping stone for religious liberty for those that would come later. And you and I are living in that liberty tonight in the United States of America because somebody was willing to invest in the next generation. Paul said to Timothy, Thou hast fully known my doctrine, my manner of life, my purpose, my faith, my long-suffering, my charity, my patience, my persecutions, my, my afflictions. You see, Paul was not simply uh, uh, concerned about finishing his race. He wanted to pass that baton on to the next generation that revival might start in the Timothy's life. And here was an instilling of action in verse 2. He says, Hear ye me, Asa. And all Judah and Benjamin, the Lord is with you. Verse number seven, be strong, therefore. Let not your hands be weak, for your work shall be rewarded. Despite the present condition that Asa sees all around him, we must not give the next generation the impression that nothing can happen. We are living in fatalism today in our churches. We have decided that revival is impossible. We've decided that an awakening cannot take place. We're, we're too far gone, and we're telling the next generation to drop out of church. No one comes on Sunday night, so why have a service? No one comes forward, so why give an invitation? No one's gotten saved out soul winning, so cancel the command. We don't have any children or any teenagers, so why have a program? Giving is down, so cancel missions. Gentlemen, we need the Spirit of God to move us this weekend. We need the Spirit of God to come upon us as he did Azariah. We need to get out of our doldrums. We need to get out of our, 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 our defeatism and our fatalism and realize that God is still on the throne, that God is still able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us. We tonight must be a forerunner to revival. There's a famine of revival. There's a forerunner to revival. But notice thirdly, the formula for revival. Now, we can't produce revival. We can't manufacture it. I can't manipulate you with my words into revival tonight. But we must provide the soil into which the seeds can fall. We must become the kindling for which the fire can begin. And we see here a boldness in verse number 8. And when Asa heard these words and the prophecy of Odin the prophet, he took courage and put away the abominable idols out of all the land of Judah and Benjamin and out of the cities which he had taken from Mount Ephraim and renewed the altar of the Lord that was before the porch of the Lord. We see a man here acting with boldness. In fact, look at verse number 16. 
And also concerning Makkah, the mother of Asa the king, he removed her from being queen because she had made an idol in a grove. And Asa cut down her idol and stamped it and burnt it at the brook Kidron. Asa was willing to deal with his own mom. And gentlemen, we need some courage to deal with sin. We need some courage to deal with it in our own lives. We need courage to deal with it in our churches. We need courage to stand up and preach against sin in our culture. God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. The wicked flee when no man pursueth, but the righteous are bold as a lion. Courage will not drive people away from your church. Boldness will not repel people away from what you believe. It will draw people to you. Look at verse number number nine. And he gathered all Judah and Benjamin and the strangers with them out of Ephraim and Manasseh and out of Simeon, for they fell to him out of Israel in abundance when they saw that the Lord his God was with him. If we can have God do a work in our hearts this weekend at this two-minute warning meeting, if we can go out of this place tomorrow at some point with God upon our lives, it'll draw some people. They will fall to us in abundance when they see that the Lord is with us. Here was a boldness, but here was also a brokenness Verse 11, and they offered unto the Lord the same time of the spoil which they had brought, 700 oxen and 7,000 sheep. You know, we want revival today without a cost. We want revival that's comfortable. We want revival that's convenient. We want revival that's costless. We don't want to be broken. We don't want to be desperate. When something breaks in our possession, we throw it away. Something breaks, it's useless. It goes in the garbage. But that's not how God looks at broken things. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. Broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. The Lord is nigh unto them that be of a broken heart. And save as such as be of a contrite spirit. We often overlook the very first ingredient found in 2 Chronicles 7 and verse 14. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves. We're quick to organize a prayer meeting. We're quick to uh, call out to God. We're, we're quick to ask people to confess their sin. But the first step of revival is a brokenness. We see not only a boldness and a brokenness, but we see a baptism. Now, I'm speaking to Baptists tonight. I think you know which baptism I'm referring to. I'm not speaking of sprinkling or pouring. We believe in immersion. In verse number 12. And they entered into a covenant to seek the Lord God of their fathers with all their heart, with all their soul, that whosoever would not seek the Lord God of Israel should be put to death. 
whether small or great, whether man or woman, and they swear unto the Lord with a loud voice and with shouting and with trumpets and with cornets. This was a baptism. They made a covenant with all their heart, with all their soul. This was not a a sprinkling decision. This was not a pouring decision. This was an immersion of a wholeheartedness for God. They instituted the death penalty for half-hearted Christianity here. If someone wasn't all in, they put them to death. In verse 19, it tells us there, were, there was no more war under the five and thirtieth year of the reign of Asa. Thirty-five years of peace. Thirty-five years of revival. Thirty-five years to live in that awakened consciousness with God. I love what Jeremiah said in chapter 29 and verse 13. Ye shall seek me and find me when ye shall search for me with all of your heart and all of your soul. These words were preceded in verse 11 where God said, I know the thoughts that I think toward you, thoughts of of peace and not of evil to bring you to an expected end. It is God's desire for us to have peace. It is God's desire that we live in a, a spirit of revival. It is God's desire that we enjoy this awakening of our conscience and our soul before God. God desires his best for his people. And his best is a revived spirit. His best is an awakened soul. His best is a consecrated life. Oh, and by the way, Jeremiah gave those commands and those promises while they were in captivity in Babylon. The devil has convinced us that revival is impossible because of the conditions around us while we neglect the catalyst within us. And as long as we're consumed with food and our bank account and our vacations and our pension and our sports teams and sleep, there'll be no revival. But God says, I love them that love me. And they that seek me early shall find me. That's a promise. Promise of revival. Gentlemen, hasn't it been long enough? Isn't the gap long enough? Dare we wait another day? Our country is sinking. Our streets are filled with violence. Our economy is in the tank. Shortages on every hand. Getting worse by the hour. Hasn't it been long enough? Hasn't it been long enough since the last great awakening in America? 
Are we going to wait another year? Wait for another two-minute warning conference? How long will we wait? How long has it been for you since God touched your heart? How long has it been since you talked to the Lord? Hasn't it been long enough? How about tonight? We have a personal awakening. How about tonight we seek the Lord with all of our heart? All of our soul. All of our mind. All of our strength. A baptism. An immersion. Once again in the power of God. been long enough. I don't think we dare wait another minute. I think right now we need to leave our seat, get to this altar, seek God. Kenny, you can come play.